attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin. Founded 1928. This week on the podcast, a special replay episode. I told you we're planning some uh, special things for the next few episodes coming up. This week... The invites will officially go out for the OJ90, 90th Summer Celebration. You uh, you should be getting those middle of the week. And so, uh, to get everybody fired up about OJ90, I wanted to go back to a special episode that really talks a lot about the history of camp, and that's Mickey Schwartz. Uh, Mickey Schwartz will be one of the three people we'll be honoring at the OJ90 event. The honorees for the event will be the three men who really led Camp Ojibwe for the first 90 years. Al Schwartz, Mickey Schwartz, and Denny Rosen. And an honor to the men who laid a legacy with a vision and carried it out. So we're psyched up about that. And Mickey's stories were fantastic because he not only told a lot of the stories about himself, but he also went back to the stories of his dad and how camp began. So I thought, how fitting to go back and do a little replay of Mickey's episode leading into the invites for OJ90 going on. So that's what you have today. Mickey Schwartz. So without further ado, here we go. Part one, Mickey Schwartz, again, on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. Hey, where did we go? Days when the rains came. Down in the hollow, playing a new game. Laughing and a running, hey, hey, skipping and a jumping in the misty morning fog with all oh, our hearts are thumping and you, a brown eyed girl. So, first and foremost, please state your name and years at camp for the record. Boy, that's another good question. Uh, Mickey Schwartz, and let's try 50 years. Wow. Unbelievable. So basically from birth. Yeah. 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 In fact, I was... Uh, I guess that's a good first question. Yeah. Were you born before or after they I was the born camp? before, and when I was three months old, I'm in a car going up to camp. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, so the first question I usually ask people is, what's the first thing you knew about Ojibwa? But from your very unique perspective, Ojibwa was just always there. I was a camper when I was five. Wow. And I probably didn't know much about camp until I was an actual camper. Hmm. I just love running around. Sure. Do you have any uh, any sense of how uh, sort of the other camp kids or the other counselors took to you when you were a little kid running around before you were I a have camper? no recollection, but sure. they didn't uh, throw me out in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night, so I guess I was okay. <laughs> awesome. Uh, <clears throat> so then... What years were you? What were your uh, official camper years? Uh, let's see. It would be 1940 uh, to probably 
56. Maybe I was there longer. Hmm. Because I was in the Army in 56 and 57. Gotcha. Uh, so as a young camper in the 40s, I mean, today's campers, you know, we have a pretty regimented sort of sports schedule. There's five age groups. There's five sports for every age group. Uh, what was the camp day like? And uh, sports-wise, we'll start with uh, in those days when you Probably were younger. instruction. In the morning after uh, rest, not rest hour, after cleanup, we'd have a lineup in front of the mess hall. Each cabin was told where they were going for instruction. And But it wasn't just sports. It was many different things. So you had land sports. You had water sports. You had uh, shop where we built things. You had uh, a th- well, theater. We did plays. We had... Uh, Inner cabin sing, which I don't know that they have anymore. Excuse me. We actually uh, recently brought it back just a couple of years ago. We had where the far field is located now, we had a ring used for riding. We had a stables. We had uh, 12 horses. Wow. They were owned by the camp by my dad. In the wintertime, he'd have the farmers in the area take care of them, feed them you know, broom them or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then in the spring, we'd get them back. Hmm. One of the best uh, riding instructors we ever had was from Eagle River, and he was phenomenal. His name was Wen Abney. Hmm. He turned out to be the uh, superintendent of schools in Eagle River. Hmm. He was a very nice guy, and he had his own cabin at the far field. Oh. So he lived pretty much with the horses. Wow. That cabin, when my dad enlarged the uh, ring, he took down trees, we developed into another athletic field, and uh, that cabin was taken by, over the winter, was taken down by sli- skis or sled or whatever. Mm to the waterfront, and that is now the waterfront director's cabin. Oh, wow. And what they did, they uh, modernized it. They put knotty pine inside. It was a very nice place for the waterfront director and his assistant to live during the summer. Nice. And remains so. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I've been up there. Denny and Sandy have been very gracious to Reva and I and keep insisting that we come back and when we come back we stay in the nicest place on the campgrounds which is terrific and uh so you know it's a lot of good tradition going on that denny sandy uh, his daughter rachel of son-in-law joel uh have kept going and that makes us feel good mm. because it, it hasn't lost uh, a bit of appeal as far as beauty as far as detail, uh, Denny's done a, a great job, as has his whole family. Mm. Were there 12 cabins for the campers? Do you remember? When, yes, I believe when I started, there were 12 camper uh, uh, cabins. There was no cabin 13. Hmm. Cabins, was there a rec hall? There was a rec hall, a mess hall. But there wasn't a shower house down there yet? No shower house. Just the one in the mess hall? The mess hall shower house, right. But most of everything was done in the way of uh, cleaning up at the lake. Sure. Uh, we used soap. We got in there 
And uh, it was cold, especially at the beginning of camp. <laughs> and uh, so the shower house uh, attached to the mess hall was a very important place. Hmm. Was the uh, camp campfire site built? The camp campfire site was there, was not built to the point that it, it is now. It did not have a stage. It had, uh, I'm trying to remember, that did have wooden made out of trees benches where we would sit around and sing, mm. which I don't know how much of that they do anymore at camp, but mm. in those days it was uh, a lot of fun because mm. we'd sing songs that were fun to sing. And... Uh, Maybe when I'm in better voice, I'll sing some for you. <laughs> but uh, you're just singing. There's no one playing any instruments or anything. You're just sort of no. It was storytelling and singing. And Denny was there when we still used to sing "Goodnight Campers" when the campfires were over at the conclusion, and uh, it was kind of a very nice feeling. Mm. Yeah, uh, you still do that for Warden. Do you? Yeah. What about? Uh, I'm sorry. Was the infirmary built? They had a little infirmary, not to the extent that it exists now, and I understand it's been remodeled and everything inside, but uh, we did have an infirmary. And uh, Was the Dad's Lodge there? No. Dad's Lodge was, was built, I think, in 46 or 47. And when mm. was 13? 13 was... Denny, I... I There's a plaque in there that well, then, then that's, the, that's the date. <laughs> My dad had a friend, a very wealthy man, who lived across the lake. Mm. His name was J.L. Keishan. At the time, he had a very large trucking company. In fact, it was the third largest in the country from wow. coast, coast to coast. So he donated some money, and my dad put up a plaque inside the cabin for his honor. And that was it. But basically, before that, we had a smaller cabin. Originally, it was an equipment cabin where mm. different baseballs and basketballs and bats and bases and things were kept. And that was pretty much to the left as you're looking at the Collegiate Week bench. To the left of that and down toward the lake. Okay. And what that, about Katie's house? When was that built in this is an interesting story. Uh, in fact, you probably don't have the whole story about how my dad ended up buying the land. No. Uh, dad loved sports. He was a very good athlete. In fact, if he didn't have to uh, provide for the family's uh, financial needs, he might have been a major league baseball player. Hmm. Very strong. Great throwing arm for third base and a terrific hitter. And he played for a number of neighborhood teams. Uh, they adopted the Polish uh, neighborhood, adopted him, and he was on the Polish team. Then the Irish team. He'd go through every neighborhood on the way back <laughs> from school. Half the time he's fighting his way through, which explains why his nose is broken probably about three, four times. Wow. And he was an amateur boxer for a little bit, and then he coached other boxers. 
Mm. He said it was easier on his head. (laughs) Dad was born in Chicago, West Side. Mom, uh, same thing. They didn't know each other then, but uh, they knew each other when there was a baseball game, and my mom was a PE major. Mm. She turned out to be an, an umpire that called him out at home plate. So, but he, then he's getting me off, uh, talk about off base. He's getting me off base with these other, but I know he's like to hear, but I think the actual foundation is an interesting story. Mm-hmm. So uh, dad looked, he wanted to do a, a boys camp. He wanted a sports camp for boys and he didn't know anything about the North Woods. He uh, worked in a, a series of health clubs and he would, he was a very good handball player also. So at the health clubs that he worked at, he was always being challenged to handball game. And uh, he won most of the games. There were a few people that could beat him. Mm. And from that, he was working with some younger boys, sons of the members of these athletic clubs. And uh, this is what he decided he wanted to do. Uh, so he uh, joined the staff of Camp Wooster. Camp Wooster, uh, I'm trying to think of the current name. It's I, one of the B'nai Birth Camps. I don't know the name. But he went to join that camp, which he did, as a staff member. He was uh, 16 years old. And uh, he was an assistant waterfront director at Camp Wooster. And uh, in the middle of the night, World War I was just about to start or had already started. In the middle of the night, the FBI came and took the head swimming director in handcuffs out of the camp. He was a German. A big man. My dad said he was like 6'4 and mm. powerful man. But dad liked him. He was a nice guy to dad. And uh, anyhow, after he was hauled off in the middle of the night, my dad at age 16 became the swimming director <laughs> at, camp, at Camp Wooster. And uh, that's what he, that planted the seed mm. that he wanted to uh, do that kind of work with kids some more. Unfortunately, my dad's older brothers, dad had uh, nine brothers and three sisters. Wow. And the older brothers, dad was about in the middle age-wise. They were fighting uh, with the American forces in Europe. Hmm. And dad, there was no one bringing in an income to speak of. My dad's father used to sell hides. He would buy hides for the leather industry he wouldn't buy them he would the fa- his father would buy them from farmers have them tanned and shipped off to wherever they make leather goods oh. so there wasn't a lot of money in that at the time so dad went off to detroit where he worked in the shipyards uh, building ships that were used in the war okay and uh he earned a lot of money doing that. He was working long hours, very dangerous conditions. It was during the war. Everything was icy, slippery, slippery. 
and uh, they had an organization known as the IWWs, the International Workers of the World, and they were communists, mm. and they weren't for our side. So they were throwing red-hot ingots down on the people on the first level, level where my dad was. Wow. So he got a team of about six or seven big, strong guys. They grabbed two-by-fours, went up to the second deck, and knocked all these guys off the ship. Wow. So his uh, foreman loved him. And, uh, but Dad had to take the money that he earned. He didn't really spend much of it. They fed these guys. They did everything. Went home, and uh, finally the war was over. And uh, Dad uh, wanted to do more work with camps, which I guess he did at the time. All these stories that I heard from my dad were on our trips up to camp. Mm. We, uh, we would make uh, three or four trips in the spring, like Denny does now. Sure. Get the ground men going. He gave them assignments. We walked the ground. He walked the grounds. And then the same thing in the fall, shutting the camp down. So I would listen to stories going, listen to stories coming back. And well into the years that I worked uh, for Dad at the camp. So anyhow, he uh, first looked around Lake Geneva, which was an ideal area because it's a little over an hour drive from the suburbs sure. and maybe an hour and a half or two hours from the city. However, he couldn't find anything that was big enough or met his pocketbook because hmm. he didn't have much money. So... He went up north because he heard there were some good camps there. And there was Camp Coaga. Mm -hmm. There was Camp Strongheart. Those are the two main camps in the area. Uh, the first campsite was in Three Lakes, Wisconsin, which is about 10 miles south of camp. And it was at a resort, and my dad loved it because the lake they were on, and we did try to find that, uh, exact lake with our baker at uh, later years, Otto Schmidt, because he was from Three Lakes originally, his mm. family. And I think he found the campsite uh, or where the resort was. And my dad loved it because in the morning he would take the entire camp, which probably was 30 or 40 boys at the time, uh, around around the lake he would run. It had beautiful sand beach all the way around the lake. And at one end of the lake was a waterfall. And that's where the kids used to shower. <laughs> other, than in, other than in the uh, uh, cabins of the resort. And that was the first year. And he did have a partner at that time who went on to found his own camp. And they were very competitive against each other because... The other one was also a kind of a sports camp, mm. and he set up his camp in the town of Rhinelander. And Dad went to one other location uh, in Arborvita, which is a small town on the way to Manaqua. Sure. And there was another resort there, and that's where he set up his other uh, camp. But he knew uh, this is not good for him. He needed a permanent site because he would... Uh, rent almost all the resort, but there were a few people that year after year came back to that resort, and oh, they sure. didn't want to be denied uh, 
So there was some drinking going on, and uh, Dad and some of the counselors from time to time would have to drag people off the camp's property side. Sure. And it happened at both locations. And that wasn't what he wanted, and that's when he finally found the location where camp is now. One of the directors told him, look for a dry goods store in Eagle River. There's a man there by the name of Dave Frankel who owns the dry goods store. He said, uh, Dad went in, introduced himself, told him what he wanted to do, and Dave Frankel was also in real estate. They did everything they could to make a dollar. So mm, sure. He uh, took my dad around, and they looked at a good number of sites. One of them, Denny, might be interested. I don't know if uh, the resort is still there or not. Uh, in, in Three Lakes, Denny, I can't remember the name of the... Uh, it, it was a major, a major resort. I'll think of it the next time we get together. Mm. Uh, that was a beautiful site and a lot of acreage, but the lake was across the road. So that's oh. not a, a good deal unless you own that property like Ojibwa is owned. It's a private peninsula. Like. Right. And there is a road that runs in there, but it's controlled by uh, staff or whatever. Mm -hmm. So when Dad saw that site, he fell in love with it. And it was... Uh, I don't know, was the ice had just gone off the lake, and he said he went in to make sure there was a sand bottom. Mm. He didn't want a mud bottom lake. Sure. <laughs> and uh, he took off his shoes and socks, rolled up his pants, and waded in a short distance, and he said, this is it. And uh, so Dave Frankel contacted the owner of the property who lived in St. Louis. And it was uh, a family that was distantly related to the uh, 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 theatrical family. It's the Niederlanders, right? Niederlanders, mm -hmm. right. And they had a distant relative. There was a Niederlander theater in New York. And so <clears throat> my dad uh, talked to the Mrs. Niederlander, who, whose husband passed away a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. And she didn't want to maintain the uh, home that was there. So Dan said, well, I love your property. He says, it would be great for what I want to do. And she says, I would like to meet you. So he went to St. Louis in his best and only suit. Wow. <laughs> and went in uh, to meet her. And in a grand home uh, in St. Louis, uh, yeah. I think it was St. Louis. Anyhow, she met him, and Dad was a great salesman. And uh, she said, what do you intend to do with the property? He says, I want to make a boys' camp. I want to teach the boys how to win and lose with equal grace, not to brag. You know, and he went into the whole story of what he wanted to do. Wow. And then he said, I also, and Dad was very proud of our country. And he says, I want to teach him good Americanism. He says, I want to be teaching them to be good citizens and to love the land. And he says, I love the land where your home is located right now. And I would not disturb that in the, in the least bit. He says, that's perfect. And uh, 
Anyhow, he talked to her for about an hour, and she says, young man, how much money do you have? I'm not going to get into that, but it was sure. a, a, a low amount, let's say single digits, okay? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, that's not enough. I'm asking more money than that. And he said, well, maybe I can go to a bank or borrow money. She says, I really want to do this. And she says, I'll tell you what, young man. She says, I like you, and I like the story you're telling. Go to my bank. And she told him the name of the bank and asked for the president of the bank. So he went to the bank, and they gave him some junior clerk. My dad told him, <laughs> you know, what he's going to do and so on. And he was strictly looking at the economics of making a loan to someone who had never been in that business, never ran a camp, other than the experience at the uh, Camp Wooster. Camp Wilson was another name. After Camp Wooster, it was Camp, or maybe before it was Camp Wilson, then Camp Wooster, then Camp Shy was the final uh, name, as far as I know, for that camp that he worked at as a very young man. So he he told uh, the, the young banker, he says, this is what I'd like to know. I need X number of dollars. He says, I can't do it. We can't loan you that. So he says, may I use your phone? So he dialed up because she told him, if you have a problem, call me. And he called her, and he says, I'm meeting with so-and-so, and he's unwilling to help me. She says, I don't want you to meet with him. I want you to meet with the president of the bank. <laughs> she says, Give that phone to the young man that won't make you alone. And I don't know what she, to- she told him, <laughs> but my dad said the young guy was holding it away from his ear. She was yelling so loud. <laughs> and then he hung up the phone, and he says, Mr. Schwartz, if you'll come with me, I'll take you to the president's office. He went to the president's office and went through the same story he told the lady, and he says, you've got the money to buy the camp. And he called Mrs. Niederlander, told her that the deal is on. And uh, from that point, uh, only in America and only at that time in our country's history, my dad went into town and met the banker in town. And he said, this is what I'm going to do. Your bank is the one I'm going to use. And my idea is to use every local merchant I possibly can. Mm. And so that was meeting that banker, and he says, I need to build cabins. I need to build a mess hall. He says, I don't know how to do it. I've never done it before. And he says, well, you're going to need a uh, lumberyard, and you're going to need a builder. And uh, he says, go to the lumberyard first. He says, I'll give him a call. He gave him a call. And my dad goes in there, and there were three guys. It was March, I think is what he told me. And it was cold out. And three guys are sitting around a potbelly stove. <laughs> and uh, he says, are you the, the young man that the banker so-and-so called? He says, I am. And he says, tell me what you want to do. <laughs> Dad went through that same story again. <laughs> and these people were enthralled. They were just listening to what he wanted to do and uh, how he loved nature, and he loved the environment there, the beauty of the Northwoods and all that. 
The owner, and this is an amazing story, the owner of the lumber yard looked at my dad, and my dad said he was a big, tough man. He looked at my dad, looked at his face, and for like a minute, my dad said it was like an eternity. He said, the man finally said to me, I'm going to trust your face for $10,000, and I will give you $10,000 worth of lumber. Wow. Enough lumber to build the mess hall and three cabins. Wow. So, you know, that was the start of it. Yeah. And my dad says, what builder should I use? He said, there's only one man that can get the job done as quickly as you need it done because you want this, uh, cabins and mess hall ready for the summer. Mm-hmm. My dad said, that's right. And he gave my dad, he wrote it on a piece of paper, Antone Holtorp, the big Swede. And uh, my dad says, oh, okay, where do I meet him? He says, he's in the woods. <laughs> You know, <laughs> chopping, chopping lumber. And my dad went in there in the woods. He told him what area. And uh, he met him. My dad said, who, my dad was very strong, but he said, this man had a hand like an iron vice. And he shook his hand. They both looked at each other. And my dad said, so-and-so from the lumberyard told me to look you up. This is what I want to do. So the story was repeated <laughs> again. And uh, Antone said, I think we can do it. He says, I'll talk to the lumber yard, and lumber will be ready. He says, I want you to come out here as soon as snow is off the ground, and we'll see how it's going to go. My dad had a friend who was an architect. He had two architect friends. One was a guy by the name of Maury Bine, and the other was a guy by the name of David Dopkin. And uh, my dad, uh, when he went up there later spring, both of them were his guests, and he put them up at some motel, and they went to Camp Strongheart because my dad liked the design of the layout of the Mm. camp. And he had seen it with uh, the uh, dry good guy, uh, Frankel, Dave Frankel. And it was set up pretty much like it is today in a semicircle with the lodge, which was the off- where the office is now, looking mm-hmm. out onto the campus. And uh, he liked that design. And so he had the architects draw by hand a layout, which Holtorp, Anton, saw the design that he had laid out, that they had laid out. He says, yep. He says, I'm going to start at the far end there, which was where cabin one, two, and three are. Mm-hmm. And my uh, dad says, okay. And with that, he saw something amazing. These are big, heavy boards. Usually two people will carry one board, you know, to the area that he wanted to start building. This guy put two boards on one shoulder and two boards on the other shoulder. He was a very big, strong man. He was like 6'3 or 6'4. Boom, the boards went down, and I didn't pound the table that time. You know, <laughs> and uh, my dad let him, left them alone. You know, He came up there for a couple of trips, and the trips in those days were over eight and a half hours Oof. to get up there. And my dad had an old jalopy car, 
that barely made it. And I believe the roads from, maybe from Oshkosh north, were mainly uh, r roads out of just sand, you know, mm. gravel and sand. And so the car used to get stuck a lot. So he wow. always took friends with him to help <laughs> push him out of the holes. You know? <laughs> and uh, son of a gun, things were starting to take shape. In the mess hall, which was a big building for those days, he managed to get that done, and he augmented him his normal staff with more uh, people that carpenters that know what they were doing, mm. and uh, that was the beginning. But there's another interesting part. When the woman that Mrs. Niederlander sold the camp to my dad, she said, "There, I have two employees there. They live year-round." as a husband and wife, the uh, Martin Evans, Martin and Katie Evans. And uh, she says they're the most wonderful people, devoted uh, helpers for me and my husband at the time and my kids growing up in the summers. I would appreciate it if you could find a place for them at camp. My dear says, absolutely. Martin was the caretaker and Katie used to do the cooking. That's exactly what they did at camp. The office porch was where Katie and Martin lived in the early years. And my dad said, this is not a place for you in the winters. They had taken some of the wallpaper or whatever was up there, the plywood or whatever, and packed newspaper in there so that the air, the cold air, wouldn't come in in the wintertime. Wow. He moved them from there when they made the office, moved them from there to the old garage. The old garage was a horse and buggy stable for the people that lived there at the time, the Niederlanders. Oh, that makes sense. For that very high ceiling in there, that Yeah, that they totally kept their sense. horses in there and a carriage in there and... It did have stairs leading up to the second floor. And that's where they spent a couple of two, three years in that loft because that had running water. Mm. And uh, after I don't know how many years, they, my dad had a cabin built for the two of them. And a subsequent addition, like a little family room, that's the Naughty Pine area, after that, because they basically had a living room, bedroom, and kitchen. It was a small cabin. Mm -hmm. And then he expanded it, and there was a basement there that had been dug out, and that's where it was heated. It was a good, warm uh, furnace in there. So over the years, they took the uh, office and what was the... Uh, um, family room or, or living room, which was where the counselor's lodge was created. And then they had two sleeping rooms off of that. One was Denny's office. And when Reva, my wife, and I were first married, my dad had built a cabin not too far from cabin 13. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't quite ready. So we stayed in the other side the other bedroom, right, the right and left of the gotcha. fireplace. 
And it was funny because our camp manager at the time was a good friend, Jim Maravitz. Jimmy was in Denny's old office, and we had the room on the other side of the fireplace. Mm. And that first night we were there, I said, good night, Reva. And then I hear from Jimmy coming, good night, Mickey. <laughs> it was nothing like being alone on your honeymoon, you know. But uh, eventually we moved out. One of the first camper and counselors, in addition to Marshall, by the way, Marshall, I believe, was a uh, collegiate swimmer for Northwestern. He was a very wow. good swimmer. He's uh, short of stature now, but at that time had big shoulders and a very powerful swimmer. Mm. Anyhow, uh, the other fellow that talked about camp was a uh, an attorney who was, as a camper, was there and as a counselor was there. I mean, a guy by the name of Jack... Jacobs. Jack had a voice that was like a stage voice, mm. beautiful baritone, and he told very interesting stories about the formative years of camp. And I asked him, I drove him up to camp one year, and I had him talking. I asked him what camp was like in the early years, 28, 29, 30 and he says, it was fantastic. He said, we had so much fun. And uh, Al, my dad, was involved in everything, including having fun. And I said, and what happened when my mom married my dad and came up to camp? Because she, she had a great background for a camp. She was a PE major and uh, would teach PE and English. And uh, he said, let's put it this way. He says, when your mom married your dad in her first summer at camp, he said it was like uh, a sheriff, what was his name? Uh, oh, he said it was like Wyatt Earp going to Tombstone. He said, that's what he said. Because <laughs> my mom made rules, and you had better follow those rules because that's exactly how she taught her P.E. class, mm. and she taught in some very rough neighborhoods. Uh, one length of time, she was at McKinley High School, and there were maybe two types of kids that were there, some Italians and a, a good number of blacks in the area. And if she liked you, you liked her back. That's just the way she was. It was... And the same with my dad. He was like from the Old West himself. He says there were good guys who wore the, uh, rode the white horses and the bad guys who wore the, the masks and ran, you know, rode the black horses. And uh, so there's no gray in either of their lives. But the teaching was a good one. And Denny's much in the same mold. He commanded respect and got it from everybody including the, the kids that he taught. Kids today still call Denny. Even those that uh, created problems, <laughs> they respected him. And I think that's a marvelous thing that mm -hmm. he was able to do. My folks were the same way. My mother was a little tougher than my dad. She was about 5'2", but you would not know it because she had a powerful voice. <laughs> and you listened. I mean, you stopped and you listened. And 
If she liked you, she was your best friend. If she didn't like you, it was trouble. She would look for the smallest thing and correct whatever it was she didn't like. Not like with Denny in the head table there, because she liked Denny. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, so we're talking about the formative uh, two sites and then the campsite, which you have more information on. Right. And uh, mom was great. Uh, she was also a uh, professional dancer. She and several of her friends had routines, and there was a, uh, I'm trying to think of the a name of the troupe that went from uh, theater to theater. But they did different kinds of dances, and her best friend, Molly Baum, turned out to be our first camp secretary. Hmm. And the two of them danced together for a good number of years. And I'm trying to remember of the troupe. It was something like, not Alvin Ailey, but it was, it was something with an A, the Asher Group or something like that. And they went all around the Midwest. And uh, so she had a, a, a background in theater. And she would help some of the aspects of our big show, which is now the Jubilee. She did it all, and she was professional. This was all choreography, which she knew how to do. And uh, she, uh, she was great, and she, she loved... If you were in a movie or even at some of the plays at camp, her laugh was the loudest in the audience. She knew... Mom was having a good time. Mm. Okay, there you go. Mickey Schwartz, part one. Uh, uh, fantastic. I forgot how many great stories were in there. It's awesome to hear them again. I uh, hope you guys are digging it as much as I am. Of course, uh, there's a part two to this interview. Later this week, uh, we'll drop that right after the invites go out. So you'll get that on Thursday. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at CampoJimboHistory.org. If you want to find out about the party, the 90th summer celebration that we've been telling you all about, you can get all the information at OJ90.com, OJ90.com. It's, and that website is going to change significantly in the middle of the week. A lot more things are going to become available. You're going to check it out. It's going to be awesome. So we're hoping to see all you guys there. If you know of anyone who hasn't heard about it, please send us their email address or send them to OJ90. We want to make sure we get a chance to invite every person who's connected to camp in any way. We want this to be the most all-encompassing party of all time for camp. And you can help. See you on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs>